I'm Pastor Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church, and welcome to Church Online. If this is your first time watching us, we'd love to hear from you. Just leave a comment or a like, and let us know that you're watching. And also, if you need anything, you can always visit us at lifechurchutah.com, and we'd love to be able to pray with you about anything. If you'd like to participate in giving today, you can do so by texting the word LCGIVE to the number on the screen. Once again, thank you for watching Church Online here at Life Church Utah. God bless. So there's something about the mountains. How many of you like mountains? I mean, you're living in Utah, so that should be... How many of you don't like mountains? Anybody not like mountains? All right, let me tell you about a place I lived for 21 years called the Midwest. <laughs> Terrible, terrible place. Um, but there's something about mountains. I grew up in, uh, in Sandy, was here for about 10 years or so, graduated from high school in 1988. And uh, I, I lived close enough that I could walk like less than 10 minutes and be right there at Bells Canyon. Just beautiful and I had a chance to, to go up there quite often. Um, Honestly, just between you and me, don't, don't tell uh, my high school, Brighton, uh, but I, I missed like half of my, my senior year skiing. But other than that, mountains are fantastic. And then we left from, uh, went off to Bible college, and then uh, after I got married, we were in Colorado for a little bit, out on the plains, and I should have known then that the trajectory of my life was going to take me to the Midwest for about 21 years suffered in the flatlands like this stage right here and just horrible and we would you know fly over the mountains or drive near the mountains coming to visit my mom up in Montana I'd be like I love them there's just something about the mountains and I would say that wonder of mountains and that awe of mountains has been with humanity since humanity was on this planet Mountains can also be sacred places, and there are some religions that embrace that idea that mountains themselves can be a sacred place. Maybe they're places of refuge, it can be a place of worship, and it was no different in the Old Testament times. So if you want to turn your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to be talking about a particular mountain uh, today in a story that's probably going to be familiar if you've been around the church for any length of time. If you haven't been around church, you're in for a, a fantastic uh, story this morning and what God wants to do among us. And so this particular mountain is called Mount Carmel. And for some of you uh, who are more refined, it's Mount Caramel, if you would like to go that direction. But Mount Carmel, from the days of, of Egyptian occupation, as far back as 1500 BC, this particular mountain had a place um, uh, kind of, a, of authority and, and spiritual mysticism and worship would happen on this mountain. And on this day in 1 Kings chapter 18, a confrontation starts. And I love this story, and I love the narrative, and I love what God does throughout, uh, throughout this story because I, I, he, he uses people. Have you ever come up against a moment when you feel like you're outnumbered when it comes to your faith? <laughs> like, okay, God, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm the minority in this situation. I feel like I'm the minority faith in this moment. And I, you know, we certainly feel that in our lives. So how do we kind of wrestle with this whole idea of, of our own faith in a, in a situation where we might not be the majority. How do we respond to this? So there's this guy named Elijah that's going to help us understand this very circumstance. So quick rundown of the names you're going to hear this morning. Uh, the first one is a guy by the name of Ahab. Everybody say Ahab. Ahab. All right. Ahab is the bad king of Israel. And I'm really tempted, if you've ever been to a... Um, 
uh, like a dinner theater or something like that, and the bad person walks out and everybody boos and hisses. You ever been to a theater like that before where they're really interactive? That's kind of what this is. And so Ahab, every time you say it, boo and hiss. I, I, well, I don't know if I want to do that or not, but that's kind of in my head would be good to do. Uh, there's a couple of others, uh, Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal and Ashtoreth, those are foreign gods that the nation of Israel at the time were worshiping, in particular, on Mount Carmel. So you're going to hear those two names, and that's basically the, the heavenly duo. You've got Baal, the man, and you've got Ashtoreth, the woman, and uh, they would have children. I mean, just all these gods, this panoply of gods, and, and uh, that was what that was all about. So you hear those names, and then the last name you're going to hear really is the name Elijah. Now, Elijah was the man of God, the prophet of God, the prophet of the God of Israel, the one true God. Something you need to know about this before we get uh, into this particular story is that leading up to 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, the land had uh, been in a season of drought. Elijah, because of all the things that were going on in the nation of Israel at the time, and the way that, the king, that King Ahab was leading the nation towards foreign gods, uh, Elijah prayed, and the Bible says that the heavens were shut up for three years. And so this is right at the very end of that three-year period of time. And so the drought has hit the land. There is no water. It has not rained. For, can you imagine not raining for three years in the famine was terrible. So we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah had been absent for a long time, and all of a sudden Elijah shows back up on the scene and shows up to begin speaking with Ahab, the bad king of Israel. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? Isn't that funny? Ahab, who's the bad guy, is telling Elijah, aren't you the one? Okay. He replied, this is Elijah replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. So Elijah right, rightfully points out that, uh, no, Ahab, I'm not the bad guy in the scenario. You are the bad guy in the scenario. And Ahab was declared by God to be, this is by God, to be the worst of the worst. Remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about tombstones and what would you want on, on your tombstone. Imagine having that. God said, I am the worst of the worst on your tomb. I mean, that's what that is. And Ahab is a bad dude. So Elijah points out the foundation of the failure of Northern Kingdom and its leadership. You have turned away from God and you're serving the Baals and the Ashtoreths and you're no longer serving the God of Israel. Verse 19. Elijah says this, now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, Jezebel is another name I didn't mention. Jezebel is Ahab's wife, and she is a bad individual as well. <laughs> She's the one who kind of starts uh, a lot of the problems in the northern, uh, northern kingdom. So uh, now Mount Carmel is a supposed dwelling place of Baal. This is where he lives, this, this God of thunder, this God of the storm, uh, perhaps the God of fire. This is where Baal is supposed to live, and Elijah says, summon everybody to this point. And this is Mount Carmel. I've got a, a map for you. Israel, you've got a Sea of Galilee at the, uh, toward the top there, toward the bottom, another bit of water, that's the Dead Sea. So Mount Carmel is up there in that ridge of mountains, uh, kind of in the northwest uh, part of Israel. 
And I was there a number of years ago, and uh, this picture, this is looking off the top of Mount Carmel towards the plains of Megiddo. And uh, for those of you who like Revelation, that's the, the Megiddo, uh, that's Armageddon, and all that stuff will be happening there. So this is the plains of Megiddo looking from uh, Mount Carmel, and all around that mountain, they have found different altars and different places of worship from other pagan religions that this mountain has been important to the area for, for uh, centuries and for millennia when it comes to this kind of activity. So Elijah is basically saying to Ahab and to all the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, I am coming to your home turf. I'm coming to where you are strongest, and I think God's going to want to do something among you. So I want to bring these uh, 850 prophets, and imagine this moment. It's like the game is on for Elijah versus, uh, versus all the prophets. It's the underdog fight of the century. It's truly a mismatch when you look at it on paper. How many of you follow uh, March Madness? Anything? Well, okay, good. None of you. That's awesome. <laughs> March Madness. Uh, some of you try to figure out who is going to win and what underdogs are going to come through and kind of blow up your bracket and you try to figure them out. Well, this is one of those moments where the bracket is stacked very much against Elijah and very much for the 850 prophets. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites, probably the leaders of the city and the clans, and gathered all of the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people didn't answer a word. They are completely silent. Basically, Elijah is asking them, How long are you going to play the game? How long are you in this, this word there, uh, wavering, can also mean limping. So how long are you going to live a, an existence of limping through life when it comes to your spiritual walk? How long are you going to uh, be hobbled by your indecision? Make up your mind. God, the true God, has provided for you over and over and over and over again, but choose who you're going to serve. But the people said nothing. So we're going to come back to that in just a second because the people do say something here pretty quick, but they said nothing at this point. Then Elijah said to the people and to the silence of the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord. Have you ever felt completely alone? Elijah's walking through this and feeling like he is the only one. But something he might not have known at the time was that Obadiah, who was another prophet, had actually, because Ahab went on this killing spree of all the prophets of God, but Obadiah, another prophet in the northern kingdom, had, had saved about a hundred other uh, prophets, a hundred other people who followed after, the, uh, after the, the, um, the God of Israel, and had hidden them in caves. And so Elijah might not have known about them, but here's something that we need to hold on to. You might feel alone at work. You might feel alone at school. You might feel alone in your neighborhood and feel like you are the only one who has a faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you there are others out there that you might not know about. And they are ready at the drop of a hat to come alongside of you. That's why these relationships that build on a Sunday morning and uh, within life groups and things like that, those are the relationships that help us in those times when we feel utterly and completely alone. I remember um, uh, being at Brighton High School back in the, uh, in the late 80s, the greatest era of music ever. Um, 
And, uh, and when, when I was there, I was not a Christian until I was probably my sophomore year toward the end of it. And then really my junior year was the first year uh, that faith mattered while I was a student. And I was very, very alone. I had to change all of my friends uh, because I was following after the bales, so to speak, right? I was following after all sorts of things I shouldn't be following after in that, that time of my life. And my junior year was a very, very lonely year. And in fact, there were about 3,000 students roughly that attended Brighton uh, at that time. Uh, that was 10th through 12th grade, so a very, very large school back then. Um, and I knew of one other outspoken Christian on the campus. And they didn't go to the church I went to. <laughs> I went to Mountain View at the time. And I, I remember loving going to youth, uh, going to the Wednesday night, because I desperately needed that interaction. I desperately needed to know I was not the only one. We've got us. <laughs> and there are times that that, uh, that has to be enough for us as we uh, understand that God has got our back. So anyway, so the ba- but the Baal's prophets are 450. So he said, I'm the only one, and then here they are, the 450. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull, place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of my God, the Lord, the God who answers with fire, he is God. He's a bit nuts. I mean, in that moment, that, that's I, like, I haven't set up an altar in my backyard and say, God, <laughs> come down. That's, it's, it's, to me, seems like a little bit nuts. And I can't wait to get to the end. It's going to be fantastic. So he's laying down rules of engagement. Elijah's saying, this is, this is how it's all going to go down. Elijah's very careful to make sure no one can accuse him of rigging the results. They get to get their own bull. They get to set up their own altar, how they want to set this all up. Elijah wants a clear answer to the question, who is God? He doesn't want any trickery there. He doesn't want anything, anybody to be led or manipulated. He says, you do what you do, and you call on your God. I'll call on God the Lord, and we'll see who answers by fire. All the people answered, that's fine. (laughs) They're still trying to figure this whole thing out. What's going on here, Elijah? We are so much more comfortable at times spectating rather than participating. Anybody an armchair quarterback? You get mad at the TV when you, when you see, you know, the quarter, you're like, if I was quarterback, I would have seen that wide open guy during the Super Bowl and we would have won. <laughs> you yell from the stands, come on up, if you had another eye, you'd be a cyclops. You get that? Okay, fine, that's... Side, being on the sidelines give us cover to have an opinion without actually entering in to prove our opinion. And way too often when it comes to our faith, we're on the sidelines. We remain really silent. And at times we say, isn't my life the way I lived enough? And I think at times God says, yeah, but you need to speak. So Elijah calls them on it. Choose who you're going to follow, God. You're going to follow Baal. And they say Nothing. And then he lays down, and this is the spectator sport, right? Then he lays down the battle, says, this is what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, all the people are like, yeah, let's get the popcorn. Let's watch this thing. This is going to be fantastic. This is uh, what McGregor versus Mayweather. Remember when that was a few years ago? This is um, Katniss versus Snow. Anybody know? Okay, fine. All right, that's great. We want to watch this. So verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, 
since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. He's like, all right, you're the home, home field advantage. You get to go first. Then call on the name uh, of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he, had, that he gave them, prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. So probably four hours of calling on their God, maybe even longer. Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. This says, then they danced around the altar they had made. And I can see Elijah just kind of on the edge watching all of this unfold. And I think God is using Elijah in a really, really powerful, dramatic way um, with all of this stuff. And how many of you, your love language or somebody you know, your love language is sarcasm? All right. Okay. So we're going to see something happen here that helps us understand that at times it might be, might be useful. So uh, verse 27. So, well, so they're beginning to chance and they are, um, you know, uh, all these prayers and they're dancing around like lunatics, it says here in just a second. It says, at noon, Elijah mocked them. And he said, shout loudly, for he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Some versions kind of imply, in the way that the, the, the Hebrew language is here, almost implies, um, is, is he uh, occupied right now by being in the bathroom? That's kind of the, the idea there. Is he thinking about it? Maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping, and, and this will wake him up. You feel and sense that sarcasm there, and Elijah is just laying it on so thick in this moment. They shouted loudly, begin to cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. So think about it now. There, there are probably 12 hours of calling on their God and nothing is happening. They had to bleed in the hope that their non-God would answer. The verb here, raved, when it says that they raved, they kept on raving, is, uh, means going mad or somewhat crazy. So, so they are, there's a, a craziness that is happening as they are worshiping a frenzy that's completely out of control. In their worship of Baal and the Ashtoreth, there was self-harm, ritual sexual encounters, some evidence of child sacrifice, but this God is completely silent, not paying attention. There's no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why is that? Because this God that they were praying to is basically like a volleyball named Wilson, <laughs> right? It's completely meaningless and powerless, And their God is exposed for the fraud that he is. Anytime we trade the God of gods for little gods, it's as silly as that. Then Elijah, after the failed attempt of, Baal, uh, of the Baal prophets, called the people to him. This is the people of Israel. Those being led into worship of Baal by their king, who is 
you know, following after these other gods. These are the people that are being fooled into other worship. And Elijah calls them in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. There's no standing back at this point. They're, they're eager now to say, okay, what's going to happen, Elijah? It says, then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. So at some point, there was worship of the Lord that took place on Mount Carmel. There, there was this idea that this was a place where God met them at some point previously. It says, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bull, placed it on the wood, and he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned and on the wood. And then he said, a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said a third time, and they did it a third time. So water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. Elijah, you're nuts. What are you thinking? Why in the world would you do this? So this altar is rebuilt and so much imagery in this moment. So the 12 stones, which explicitly, uh, as, as it just said, refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's this moment where Elijah is saying, I am setting up 12 and I'm setting it up for a reason. That this represents the people of God. This represents all of us. And then what does he do? He, he grabs four uh, jugs of water and he three times, and so four times three, if my math is correct, that's 12, <laughs> right? So 12 again shows up. Elijah's saying, folks, this is about you. God wants to make this about you. And he pours water. What are they in the midst of? They're in the midst of this incredible drought. How valuable is this water that he is wasting? It's incredibly valuable. I think that's a challenge to us. Do we hold back when it comes to worship? Do we refuse to give God the, the most valuable parts of our lives? Do we refuse to give a sacrifice that costs us something? So here they are pouring that water out, something that is so valuable to them. So imagine the people doing this. They're watching this. They surely would have been dumbfounded. And why would he be putting water on the wood? Seriously, Elijah, you are absolutely nuts. And, and I don't think God is up in heaven at this point going, okay, build the altar. is great. Water. No, 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 no. Don't throw. Oh, that's going to be harder now. Oh, my goodness. You know what I'm saying? I don't think. Our God knows no degree of difficulty. Right? Our God knows no degree of difficulty for some reason. Amen. We hear, and I want you to hear this for your own situation. God's not dumbfounded by this. God, God's like, split the Red Sea? Yeah, I, I did that. Feed, you know, fed the, the, uh, the nation of Israel by manna for 40 years? Yeah, did that. But this work situation you're bringing to me, eh, not so sure I can handle that. Right? I mean, that, that becomes the absurdity at times of what we think that's too difficult for God to do. Or, you know, or, you know God uh, raised earlier on in the story of Elijah, raised this, uh, the, the widow's um, son back to life. And we wonder if God is powerful enough to save our marriage. Folks, there's no difficulty that God can't handle. 
And this moment, Elijah's pouring water in there. God's not confused. And God's like going, oh my goodness, now I can't do a miracle. <laughs> I think in some ways, God's probably in, inside Elijah's heart egging him on. Do more. <laughs> the angel appeared to Mary in the New Testament at the birth of Christ, or just before the birth of Christ. And Mary looks and says, but this is impossible. This, this can't happen this way. And the angel answers Mary and says, yeah, to, to you, to, to you a human, to, to us as humanity, this might be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And it's not about the water either in this moment. All of a sudden, the people of Israel who are standing by spectating, now they're the ones who have gathered the jugs. They're the ones who maybe have gathered the water, what little they had, and they're the ones who are pouring it on the altar. Now they're participants in what God is about to do. They're peaked in their hearts with each water as it's poured over that. Verse 36, at the time for the offering, or for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the water and said, no exclamation point after this, by the way, no screaming and ranting and raving, no cutting himself, none of that. Listen to what he says. It's a very, very simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done these things. We overcomplicate prayer, folks. We really do at times. God is longing to hear us pray. God is longing for us to speak to him. He prays differently, right? No jumping around. And I'm sure the prophets of Baal are watching all of this and they're laughing at Elijah. Going, you think your God's going to listen to you? I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up here as we uh, close out. You see, God always has a purpose when he unleashes his power. God always has a purpose when he unleashes his power. God is always at work in deep, meaningful, per personal, and purposeful ways. He's not about sensationalism to prove a point. He doesn't need to do that at all. There can be chasing after signs, and that's what the world does. And I think as Christians, sometimes we want to do the same thing. What's the next big thing? And I want to go to that big thing and chase after it. But as Christians, we shouldn't or we don't chase signs and wonders, but they should follow us. That's what the Bible says should be our reality. That supernatural things should be happening in the wake of our lives because we're following after the God of Israel. Verse 37, he goes on with his prayer. Once again, no exclamation points on it. He says, answer me, Lord. Answer me so this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. There's a purpose in all of this. It's not to bring glory to Elijah, to put him in a position where he is the, uh, the prophet that everybody's looking for. The whole purpose is stated in that last little bit, to turn hearts to God. All of, his, all of Elijah's life, every bit of what he was working towards in this moment was to bring 
people's hearts to God. This is it. This is the center. This is the entirety of the moment. The first confrontation three years ago, we didn't read about it, but that was the confrontation between Elijah and Ahab, and that's when the rain stopped. The very, very first one of those uh, was kind of to reveal Baal to be powerless because Baal was the god of thunder, the god of storms, and he has been silent for three years. And now all of a sudden, in this moment, this, this powerful experience is to lead hearts back to God. You are here today for a purpose. You didn't just happen to walk in today unexpectedly. God is at work in each one of your lives. And I don't believe that it stops just with this group who is here today. I think your influence, just like Elijah's, is to bring people's hearts to God. That means your neighbors whom you haven't seen very much because they they drive in, shut the garage door behind them just like you do. Now all of a sudden the weather's getting better. You might see people you haven't seen for several months walking around outside and God says, turn their hearts towards me. God, how do I do this? How do I turn hearts towards you? Fire from heaven is fine. We're going to find this in just a moment, but there's a bigger work happening this morning and in the lives of your neighbors and your friends this amazing grace to be added to you, falling from heaven for you. So the story continues, verse 38. It says, Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, but not only that, it consumed the wood, the stones, the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Okay, And I'm sure the people did bow down. (laughs) I'm sure in that moment there was an astounding uh, response from the people because fire fell from heaven. But here's something for us to keep in mind. When God wants to do something supernatural, (laughs) he will often ask you to do something super practical. Let me say that again. When God wants to do something supernatural, he will often ask you to do something super practical. What did Elijah do? He built an altar. There's nothing supernatural about the altar itself. He put the 12 stones up there, put wood on it, and put, uh, put the sacrifice on it. And then he poured water on it. <laughs> Just kind of top it off. But there's nothing supernatural. But this was something that they were used to. It was super practical to make an altar and to worship the Lord. But God took that super practical step and did something amazing. So what super practical thing is God asking you to do? Maybe there's a work situation right now and you're saying, God, I'm I'm the only one following after you and it is just so, so hard in this moment And God says to you to be super practical. And maybe there's something that you have done and you need to go ask for forgiveness from a coworker because of an attitude you copped when you were sharing Christ. Maybe something's gone on in your marriage and the super practical step is to tell your spouse that you love them for the first time in six months. 
that you truly love them. Maybe as a parent with your child, the practical step is to uh, help them clean their room rather than uh, complaining about how messy the room is. I wouldn't know what that is uh, with my children because they all clean their room up. It's great. Maybe the super, super practical step is to invite your friends over to your home just to have a neighbor over for no other reason to develop relationships. In the moment of those things that we do super practical, and remember it's in the name of the Lord, that's what Elijah did, laid up the stones in the name of the Lord. When we do these super practical things in the name of the Lord, God's like, this is that altar that I am waiting to bring my fire down (laughs) to bring the hearts of people back to me. Folks, this is how we can experience, even when we we feel like we are alone in the world, this is how we can experience that fire from God in our lives. And then the very, very last thing here, I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet here as we close out. When responding to the will of God, indecision is not an option. (laughs) Right? Indecision is not an option. The, The people of Israel were in that place of indecision. They're in this valley of indecision. Who should we serve? Elijah said, you've got to choose one or the other. I'm here to tell you that the will of, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? I can tell you this for sure. The will of God for your life is to give your entire heart to him. To not have any corners, not have any, any parts of your life you're reserving for yourself. But to say, God, I give you every bit of my life. And for some of you, this is the first practical step that you need to take for God to begin moving supernaturally in your life. To say, God, I give you everything. I don't want to be in that, that moment of indecision anymore. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.